spiritual urgency is the gift of life. So we learn how to be open and vulnerable and receive life, to face life as it is, uh, as well as being protected by wisdom and love. To use the gift of, of life wisely, we need all the dignity and compassion we can find. As some of you have heard, the human birth is considered to be the most precious realm of existence to do spiritual work because there's just enough pleasure and pain, uh, not too much of each, to be motivated to do the work. Sometimes it can seem like maybe there's not enough balance of pleasure and pain. But if there was too much pain, it would be said that we're in a hell realm. And if there was so much pleasure, it would be said that we're in a heaven realm. And we have tasted those experiences in this realm of existence. So in this retreat, we will teach four Brahma-viharas. Tomorrow we'll introduce the compassion practice as a flavor. Mostly we'll recommend to keep doing the loving-kindness practice. So I'd like to just go over these divine homes again. Loving-kindness being first. As you know, it's unconditional love or love with wisdom. This is so fundamental to our existence. It's a blessing. It's a tenderness. And as we've learned, the experience that seems so much like unconditional love is attached love. And the opposite of this is anger. Compassion. We orient the openness of heart that we learn in the loving-kindness practice toward the suffering or pain in the world, and we care about it. There's a vast range of pain and suffering in this world. I think one of the greatest gifts I was ever given was to understand that I could transform my awareness of suffering into compassion and skillful action rather than reacting to the pain with anger or cruelty or fear or pity. So the experience that seems so much like compassion, <coughs> which is care with understanding, is grief or sorrow. And the opposite is cruelty. Mudita, or empathetic joy, is the third Brahma-vihara. So as we said, there's a vast range of suffering in the world. There's a vast range of joy in the world. And we can learn to open, orient our openness of heart toward this joy and appreciate it. This is another great gift for us to learn that we can deeply appreciate the range of pleasure and joy 
in the world instead of reacting to the joy <coughs> with attachment, with jealousy or envy, with addiction or over-exuberance. So the experience that seems so much like this empathetic joy is over-exuberance or attached joy. And the opposite is envy. And then the last Brahma-vihara is upeka, or equanimity. This requires the most understanding to understand. (laughs) It's a deep balance of mind in the face of joy and sorrow in the world. You can think of it as unconditional acceptance of things as they are. And the experience that seems so much like equanimity but isn't is indifference. (coughs) And in the spiritual world, we all know what that feels like. You know, we're told we're attached (laughs) by somebody who's acting like they have it together. But actually, we sense that they don't have it together, (laughs) you know, because their heart is closed. So they're acting equanimous, but actually they're indifferent. And it can seem so much like it's equanimity. The opposite of equanimity is reacting. So it's reacting to the joy in the world with attachment or addiction. And it's reacting to the pain in the world with aversion or fear. One of the reasons we like to teach all four Brahma-viharas during a metta retreat is because each person tends to uh, have a Brahma-vihara that's like a doorway to all the Brahma-viharas. And for some people, it isn't loving-kindness. So there might be somebody who's done practice for 20 years. And we've seen this, where they learn the compassion practice or the uh, empathetic joy practice, and they connect. And they felt like a failure at metta all the years of trying to do it, but it's actually because it wasn't their doorway. So it's important to start where the ground is softest, And I'd like to use that image of gardening again, because if we plant seeds, you know, if you're planting seeds in hard earth, it's much harder for the seeds to sprout. But if the earth is soft, it's easier for the seeds to sprout. It's easier to garden. And certain Brahma-viharas, our hearts will be softer for that planting to happen. So as you know, when you garden, you create the best conditions for the seed to sprout, but then we let go of control of the result. And I wonder how that's been for you since the beginning, that, that putting in the effort with some balance, but also letting go of control. Are we trying to measure, well, how far have I gotten? You know, am I getting anything out of this? Is it working? You know, and what would that mean? Because sometimes we think that we're going to harvest all this unconditional love right away. And sometimes it takes patience. We can't, during a retreat, we can't often see what's growing. 
or what we'll harvest. <coughs> this is a quotation uh, from a book called Epitaph for a Peach. And I like it because it shows the love of the work of gardening. I can't count the thousands of shovelfuls of earth I have moved in my life, but I like to think of the thousands that lie in my future if I am fortunate. Do you think of practice that way? (laughs) Do you look forward to the next shovelful of (laughs) self-hatred or fear? And feel fortunate that you get that opportunity. It's so easy to forget that we're fortunate to have this precious opportunity to look at the fear. So each time we face self-centered desire or hatred, or each time we remember a phrase, and that's all, or each time we remember to relate to pain with compassion. How fortunate. You know, that's planting the loving-kindness garden, or the garden of compassion, of joy, and of balance. I'm reading this because I think that we tend to try to measure what we would call progress so much, uh, when it's so hard to see it. And this is a very poignant uh, description of someone who was trying to measure their practice, or their life, their spiritual journey. And it's by a man named Vernon Harper, a native Canadian who um, does sweats for uh, prisoners in Canada. He said, my mother was alive until I was four years old. I remember her holding both myself and my twin brother in her arms when she died. At that time, we were living in Regent Park, Toronto, which was a ghetto. This was during the Depression in the 30s, and my father was working for the railroad. One of the most powerful things my mother gave to me was right before she died. The last thing, and I remember it clearly, was that she breathed on us. She gave us her last breath. We had to be taken from her arms, and then we were sent to foster homes but we had the gift of her last breath on us. I've talked to my twin about this, and although we went our separate ways, each time in our lives when we were in very very serious trouble, like when we were almost ready to give up, we both became drug addicts and alcoholics. Each time that breath would come to us, I've had that experience a number of times, and just when I was ready to pack it in, I felt my mother's breath. 
I finally made it through my addictions. I made it through the 60s. And I told my auntie, I've made it through. I'm not going to drink again. And my life is going to change. But what a waste. But she said, Vernon, it's like this. Life is a garden. And for anything to be worthwhile and grow or bloom or be productive or beautiful, it takes a lot of shit. (laughs) And that's what I went through. She said, now it's up to you. You can stay in that manure and you can feel sorry for yourself or you can grow and bloom into something very beautiful and very productive. It's up to you. Right away I realized she was saying it wasn't all wasted time, that my own healing was the training for the work I do now. How much of the time of our lives do we feel like is a waste of the retreat? how judgmental we can be when we lose it. And yet, is that wasted time? Patience is an aspect of the Brahma-viharas and of wisdom. I know whenever I get caught in time, it's so painful. And the most painful times of my life are when I'm completely caught in time. And then there's timelessness. And in the deepest places of my life, I know I have all the time in the world. You know, time opens up. There's no hurry. There's no rush. There's no waste. And there's a paradox in in this. You know, there's a spiritual urgency that also has to be balanced with a lightness of heart. Especially on retreat, we need that balance. Loving kindness, love with understanding. Why is it so hard? Why love at all? You know, why bother to love at all when we lose it and when it hurts so much to lose it? This is why it's called unconditional love, because of mortality, because of impermanence. I particularly love the image that the Buddha gives of a a mother cow looking at a newborn calf, because I think of the pain of labor, you know, of childbirth. And when you think of uh, taking birth into this world, for all of us, all beings, uh, that newborn moment is so incredibly, achingly poignant. Uh, And the Buddha is describing that moment of just that purity of wishing this newborn well as the experience of loving-kindness. And that he's saying, you know, we can cultivate this 
for ourselves. We can cultivate this for each other and all that lives because all of us have that newborn heart. We share that as beings. Then we start to realize what we're doing. And we might lose the, <laughs> we lose the thread a lot. We forget why we're doing it. Um, but as we do it, we start to learn that it's, it's, it's love that doesn't have attachment to result. We forget because we put so much work into it. We keep thinking that it might be about changing ourselves or changing someone. But it's really love with understanding means that we understand that we're not attached to the result. The purity is understanding we can't control the result. I found as I did this practice that my understanding kept deepening of what I was wishing. So hopefully your understanding will change as you do this practice over years. You'll find that the meaning will shift for you, and that's wonderful. When we think of that purity of the newborn and the wish, uh, the reason why it's so tender is because in that is the understanding of the preciousness of the gift of life. You know, we're facing mortality in loving-kindness, the fleetingness of life. As we do this practice, we do face conditional love, hopefully. We face the judge inside and outside. We face self-hatred and cruelty. Stephen started a retreat in Upper Burma uh, with a Sayadaw named Sayadaw Ulakana. But he doesn't get to go in anymore because the Burmese government won't let him in. So I go in to teach this retreat for the past three years. And I had never done any practice in Asia. So going in as a Western woman lay teacher to Upper Burma to teach, having never been there, was quite a jump for me. And the monastery is over, I think, 700 years old. Uh, and there's, a, there's still a very ancient village way of life that's so interconnected to this practice. So when we eat our meals, um, the people who have brought the food watch us eat. You know, the local people and the cooks and anyone who's brought food, whether it's from the village or sometimes people come from Mandalay, they stand around and watch us eat. Very intimately, very closely. And it brings them so much happiness. It's like if you can imagine each bite full of food, they just get more happy (laughs) and more happy. And there's a Western monk that was uh, sitting this retreat. And he came in for an interview. And he said that as the days were going on, he was feeling more and more unworthy of this offering. 
you know, so much unworthiness was coming up. Uh, so I could say, you know, that their offering isn't personal. You know, that they, they respect the practice. They respect the nobility and the dignity of this practice so much that that's why it brings them so much joy, is they know what we're doing. You know, they've been brought up to know how hard it is and to, and to try to support it as much as they can. Um, and it was so important to see that unworthiness. You know, that's part of the purification of the practice. So as that unworthiness comes up, we start to fear how unlovable we think we may be. And sometimes this is not conscious, uh, but at the core, there can be ways in which we don't think we deserve love. And we need to learn how to be mindful of unworthiness and mindful of the thoughts, because the thought, I am lovable, is just a thought. The thought, I am unlovable, is just a thought. But how much pain believing these thoughts cause us. And the resistance to the experience of unlovability can be so painful. So I find that when we do the loving-kindness practice and when some of these deep core uh, hurts appear, the compassion practice can be, be so much more helpful. When we're, ha- you know, when we're down for the count to say, may I be happy and peaceful, sometimes it just doesn't go directly to what's happening. So if we remember that compassion, karuna, is orienting the heart towards suffering and just caring about it, it can, it can go right to the mark. Sometimes we forget that these Brahma-viharas are actually very pleasant. So even though compassion requires the willingness to touch the pain, it's a very pleasant feeling. And the way you know the difference between grief or sorrow and compassion, true compassion, is that Grief and sorrow hurts, <laughs> and, <laughs> and compassion feels wonderful. It's not to, to reject the experience of grief or sorrow. Often, when we touch the pain in the world or ourselves and another, we go through grief and sorrow. But those experiences aren't compassion. So we learn in the loving-kindness practice that the proximate cause for loving-kindness is tuning in to the innate goodness in someone or ourselves. So the proximate cause for compassion is tuning in to helplessness. That's quite a powerful teaching. The proximate cause for compassion is tuning into the helplessness in the face of suffering. The Buddha taught this as well as that compassion is the quivering of the heart in relationship to pain. So I found as I started to do the compassion practice, 
that the experience was just like a, a light touching of the pain with care. So if I went into the pain too much, I would drown in it, and it wasn't effective, and it wasn't compassion. And then if I stepped away too far back from it, I couldn't touch it. I couldn't experience that helplessness in the face of it. Uh, So you know, when you step too far back, it's like you want to go to Pluto and get your binoculars out, you know, and kind of (laughs) just... Oh, it's nice to keep it all nice out there. Um, We're detached, but we're not really connected. And then sometimes we might really empathize to the point where we're breaking down. Now that usually isn't effective in terms of helping ourselves or another either. Now that can happen, so I'm not saying that's wrong, It's just not the balance of compassion. So balance is the willingness to connect with the pain and sorrow in the world with this care. I didn't get taught this practice for 16 years of my my, uh, formal Vipassana practice. And when I was first taught it, and I realized But for me, it was like I was given all the gold in the world when I learned it. When I got that you could really (laughs) open to the pain in the world, that vastness of it, and feel this wonderful feeling of care, I was so inspired. But then I thought, who left this out? (laughs) You know, like, why didn't we learn this in kindergarten? first grade, second grade. I mean, it's so, again, it's, it's just like loving-kindness. It's so fundamental to human experience. You know, we need to learn this so much. It's so difficult to learn how to work with pain. I mean, if there was no pain in the world, it wouldn't be not... <laughs> you, know, you probably wouldn't be sitting in this room. You know, the deva planes, the celestial planes are considered to be harder to develop spiritually in, because there's so little pain. When I first practiced Vipassana, or mindfulness practice, when I first started running into layers of pain I had resisted in my life, um, it was very difficult to learn how to work with it. So the first layer was sleepiness, and I considered myself the queen of sloth and torpor. (laughs) In fact, no one's won the crown yet. Um, But it was very difficult, you know, day after day, retreat after retreat, to go through this much sleepiness. The pain was the resistance to it, but I didn't know that at the time. And when I first started getting a glimpse of how much sleepiness <laughs> was coming up, the first thought I had was, what am I going to do with all the sleepiness? <coughs> and each time I hit another layer of pain, that was what happened. 
It's like once I learned how to work with the sleepiness, the next thing that really came in strong was aversion. Aversion to aversion, resistance to aversion. And when I first started being able to just get a glimpse of it, it was overwhelming. And the thought was, what am I going to (laughs) do with all this aversion? And then eventually, a little white flag would go up. But that would be after trying everything possible to avoid it. And the white flag would be the beginning of surrender. You know, like... (laughs) 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 Oh, (laughs) maybe (laughs) I can try learning how to experience this. You know, this would be this revelation. Oh, this is what we're doing, you know. Once that happened, the next layer was loneliness. And each layer, there was more resistance. You know, and it would be intense. That When it first would start to appear, it would be intense, and I would feel overwhelmed. And there'd be that feeling like, this is just too big for me. I just can't do it. But actually, it was only because the attitude was one of, this is too big, I didn't have the skill. I had no skill. I didn't know how to do it. But then when the attitude would go, well, maybe I can try to learn how to get the skill to work with this, then it started to feel possible rather than impossible. And that's the difference between getting caught in time and timelessness, you know, impatience and patience. The impatience is when we think we can't possibly do it, we're never going to get it, because we're taking too big a dose of it with no skill. Compassion gives us a skill, because instead of saying, oh no, not this again, I'll never be able to do it, it's like, oh, I can learn how to care about this. So it's not that you're in the experience of loneliness, drowning in it without mindfulness and going down the tubes. It's actually not going into the experience yet. You don't, you're not trying to be mindful of it yet. You're just kind of staying, you know, just a little distant from it, touching it and saying, oh, loneliness, I can learn to care about you. That can bring the skill to then be mindful. Mindfulness includes non-judgmental attention. Loving kindness, compassion are loving, you know, they are non-judgmental attention. And then an aspect of of mindfulness is non-identification, not taking it personally. That's that's great skill. Uh, But if you start to just um, begin (laughs) To, to work with something for the first time, like something you've resisted a lot, maybe you can't do it perfectly. As my nephew used to say to me, duh. You know, I mean, you know, like, <laughs> you know, of course you can't, because you don't know how. You know, hopefully we're not in this retreat thinking that we should know how to deal with everything that comes up, because that would mean you were fully enlightened. That would be great. But it's probably not the truth. <laughs> and so if, if you're learning, it requires learning how compassion happens. And again, that willingness to face, to touch the pain, and feel the helplessness. 
and then learn. So, so much of my practice was thinking that I had to get rid of all these things that were difficult and painful. And slowly I learned that I didn't have to get rid of anything if I saw it clearly and was compassionate. Compassion helps us meet what is difficult with dignity and maturity. And sometimes things can be painful. When I was 13, my mother died, and that was uh, a very hard teaching for me, but the most profound. And my sister, the past three years and two months, has been struggling with ovarian cancer, and it's, it's just getting harder. So she's been having chemotherapy without a break for three years, two months, and now she's getting it every week. You know, and it's just like, ugh. Um, and each time, you know, that it's like another layer of bad news. Uh, it's difficult for me. So this spring, when it was like another layer, I went to my mother's graveyard uh, in Massachusetts, and I was walking around contemplating all the stones. Some, some graveyards are so beautiful and so massive. And I walked around thinking, you know, I really get that death <laughs> happens, you know. I mean, I've contemplated a lot. I, I, it's one of my practices. It's been something I've worked with so much. And yet, um, when I get another layer of my sister's uh, bad news, I put up a fight. And it's like a no. No. This is unacceptable. And then I look at why is it unacceptable, and it's like, it's unbearable. Uh, and I experience that helplessness in the face of the suffering. And then I see that the dignity is really the acceptance of that. You know, it's the acceptance of the unbearability in the face of it. And then I just witness that with care. And that shift to the witnessing of it with care is like the difference between night and day. You know, that's the gold, and it feels wonderful. And then I can share that with my sister, because she doesn't need my grief <laughs> and my sorrow, especially as the years go on. It's like she really needs my strength. Um, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to share that with her. You know, it's so joyful. But it's a practice. When we start to understand our own potential for that in this world, because the human world has a lot of pain, if you can open to your own pain with this kind of compassion, and then can open to others' pain with this kind of compassion, you bring 
the greatest gift you can into this world. So if you have suffered today a bit, or yesterday, good for you. (laughs) I celebrate that. You know, it's not always easy to be on retreat. I love it when people say goodbye to you and they say, have a good vacation. (laughs) You know, the ones who don't really get it, they think you're out on the lounge chair with some Mai Tai or something, you know, sipping, sipping away with your sunglasses on. You know, it's not always like that. <laughs> but if you can even realize once that you could be given all the pain in this world and you could care about it, and that that could be a wonderful experience. That would be a great thing. So we don't have to be overwhelmed by helplessness if we learn to care. I was thinking about uh, Burma because Burma has this amazing range of light and dark right now. You know, it's like When I come back from Burma, I experience our culture as like a desert, spiritually. You know, you walk into a mall, (laughs) you know, and it's like the difference. It's like you, you fly into Rangoon and it's like electric. The spirituality is still so strong. And yet there's this military dictatorship that is one of the most horrendous, horrendous governments that ever was in this world. So that when I go into that place, you know, I know I have to be prepared for this range of joy and sorrow. And as I get to know, especially the women in the village, I don't speak Burmese, but they tell me so much with their eyes. And I feel like each year, you know, their spirits are just getting worn down. And it's like, I don't know how long they can take it. And I know for myself that the deepest part of trauma is the loneliness in it. It's like if you never have someone connect with you in trauma, that's what makes it the most difficult. So for me, I see myself going in as a witness, and I try as best I can to make eye contact, but it's hard. Um, And one of our projects, uh, Steve started a whole bunch of projects, like a school project and a hospital project. Um, So we support all the children in the village to go to school, because um, if we didn't, most of them won't go beyond first grade. So we support them to go through sixth grade. And in the big scheme of things, that might sound like a little bit. But if you were a parent and your child had to start working in first grade, you would think it was a big thing. Uh, So we decided to build a school because the school flooded three or four months a year because it was built along the, the river. And the government was supposed to build the other half, which of course they didn't, but we built 
our half. Um, and Sayada Ulakana decided to have, as usual, a real ceremony to honor the gift. It's like they really have down honoring generosity. I didn't know what he had planned, but I knew he planned something. So about three quarters of the way through the um, retreat, you know, I could hear this stuff going on in the loudspeaker. And often, you know, if there's a party in the village, it's on a loudspeaker. And we live through these parties uh, <laughs> when we're sitting. Uh, but this was different. But I didn't know what was going on, but I could just hear things being announced on this loudspeaker hour after hour. And um, one of our Hanai sons, Hanai means like adopted sons, um, who lived with us for some years when he was a teenager, is now in Burma as a monk. He's 20. And he has learned Burmese. And he was sitting this retreat. And he came up to me about midnight, and his eyes were all bright, and he said, do you know what they're saying on the loudspeaker? And I'm like, of course not. <laughs> I can't understand. I kind of, sometimes I have mudita for him for learning Burmese in two months, but uh, I've been trying to learn one phrase in Burmese for three years, so uh, I'm a little frustrated with myself <laughs> with my Burmese. So he's all excited about understanding the loudspeaker. And he said, well, they've announced everyone's name who's ever given anything to the Metadana project. You know, anybody who gave one dollar, ten dollars, you know, they announced their names. Um, and then the people in the village raised money after all that so that they could have dancers come in from Mandalay for the yogis at the end of the retreat. And, I, you know, it's very moving because they don't have much. And, you know, it's like they really want to give back. Um, so they had this big official ceremony. And eventually I had to give a speech, um, which was translated into Burmese. And, of course, um, it was on loudspeakers all over the village. And we have to be very careful what we say. And it, our presence there is extremely delicate. Um, but I wanted to say something that would get through, because you know it's hard to find a way to do that. So I said that um, the people in the world that had given money for the children and the school. I wanted them to know that we think about them and we care about them. You know, that's all I could say. But it was very meaningful. You know, when you live in a um, totalitarian dictatorship, <laughs> it's hard to say anything, but it got through. And it was very, it's very wonderful. Um, to feel the helplessness in the face of suffering in this world and connect with it in some small way. That's all we can do with ourselves and others. One aspect of that is listening to our own minds. And if we listen to our own mind for five minutes or five hours or five days, 
and you multiply that by everyone on the planet, you would be motivated to practice. Now you'd be motivated to develop more and more compassion. You know, so we all have our own individual unique stories, but the suffering is very universal. Uh, and it's what I love about the Buddha's teaching so much that if you look very carefully, the suffering is the aversion to pain or the fear of pain and the attachment to, to pleasure in the face of mortality, in the face of impermanence, in the face of change. And if you listen very carefully to your own mind, you can see all the cruelty and all the judgment. And yet we can learn to just not take it seriously and not to be oppressed by it, not to be a victim of it. And hopefully our motivation to practice is this compassion, is this great care. Uh, So again, there'll be places I know that we all run into in practice that are hard. But if we don't wake up to our own suffering, we don't get motivated to practice. You know, that is our motivation. And it's not just the only motivation in terms of ourselves, but when you learn to work with anything in yourself, you can help someone else with that. You know, so the motivation can't possibly be selfish because there's no separation between ourselves and another. And that's the truth of things. So every time, you know, every time you take a step or sit in this hall, or take a bite to eat, and you try to have some dignity and compassion in that process, you're bringing this great gift to the world. There's a great nobility in that. And we can't respect that process enough. It's not that you have to respect that in any kind of um, self-centered personal way. But that's why the people in Burma who come to watch us eat have such great joy in us doing that because they understand the gravity of what we're doing. And hopefully we all understand the gravity of what we're doing, ending violence, ending suffering is no light matter, even though we have to be light about it and patient. Mostly I wanted to talk about compassion tonight. I did a little bit about loving-kindness. But I also just wanted to touch in with empathetic joy. Steve will talk about equanimity tomorrow night. Empathetic joy is very similar to compassion. And it's just that instead of orienting toward pain, we orient, we orient toward joy, and we appreciate it. And how much is that out of balance in our culture? You know, it's extraordinary. All you have to do is open a Newsweek or the Chronicle. You know, it doesn't even matter where you are in the world. It's like 
um, how much bad news do we hear about? And how much joyful things do we hear about? Uh, so there's so much beauty in this world. The Buddha taught that this is harder to open to for most people, mudita. And why? Is it because it's so hard to face jealousy? You know, and this is what's so interesting about um, life. If others have joy or happiness and success, and we don't, you know, how do we work with that? the Buddha taught that we can cultivate not only this tenderness like we would for a newborn, loving-kindness, we can cultivate like a garden, care about the pain in the world, but we can also cultivate this appreciation for the joy in this world. And when I first started to do this practice, I kept thinking it might have to be for big things, like the first person you pick in this practice just like in loving-kindness, you start with yourself. In compassion, you start with a suffering person. In empathetic joy, the instruction is to pick somebody, when you think of them, you smile. And I kept thinking I had to pick someone who had this great big success or great happiness. But as I started to do this practice for myself and others, and started to realize what brought about joy for us as human beings. It's usually very simple. And so like the sound of a cricket, like right now, or a bird. I know for Steve it's when he sees a wave. You know, it's like for some people it might be eating an apple. The day that whoever brought the roses into the uh, dining room you know, they were just extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> it was just amazing, those roses, or the flowers up here behind me. You know, we all have these things that bring us joy, and they're not complicated. We all have them. It can be a beautiful summer day. And then yet, how easily we can get attached <laughs> and glom on, you know. And so this is, again, the things change, life changes. So the Brahma-viharas include love with understanding, care with understanding. It's empathetic joy with understanding. So we get that as we do these phrases, we understand that this means we understand change. In the, in the face of feeling these experiences. You know, so of course the mother cow knows that that baby cow's in for it, one way or the other. Yeah, it's going to have green grass in winter. You know, it, they'll, we have the vicissitudes of life. When we feel compassion, yeah, we know that life includes joy and sorrow. But can we care about it? You know that life includes joy. Can we appreciate it, even though we know it will pass? And then equanimity, unconditional acceptance. What tools? You know, these are such amazing tools to learn. 
to know that we can cultivate these like we can these beautiful roses we just saw. It's like the roses in the dining room are like a heart blooming with the Brahma Viharas. Now we could have a doom and gloom attitude that we weren't born like that. <laughs> you know, maybe it's too bad that maybe we weren't born with these perfected. But we were born in this human body, on this spiritual plane, to develop, to grow. So it's really up to us. So hopefully we can um, keep going with our spiritual journey with as much dignity and compassion as we can and use the precious gift of life wisely. I'd like a um, Native American saying, which is anonymous. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.